give a man a book, you entertain him for a night, teach a man to write, you give him crippling self-doubt for life, right? (laughs) And so I live as a permanent resident of imposter syndrome city, right? Like Mm -hmm. I wrote a book out of the gate, incredibly popular, stuff like that. Don't feel like I earned it. Don't feel like I'm actually that good a writer. I just feel like I lucked into it, right? And so, yeah, I can definitely see, you know, this is in retrospect, it wasn't intentional, but yeah, I, I, probably there is some, some of that in, in uh, when I put the character of Ryland together. What's up, guys? This time I sit down with Andy Weir. Andy is a best selling author for most notably The Martian, and he just released his newest novel, Project Hail Mary. This is the first fiction book I've read in a long time, and it did not disappoint. I cried like a baby at the end, and I don't cry often, at least not outside the bedroom. I'd recommend Project Hail Mary to anyone who is interested in reading a fascinating story about what humans are capable of in the toughest of situations. Even if you aren't a science nerd, which I am not, this book will move you. Fair warning, this conversation with Andy does contain some spoilers up to about the halfway point in the book, so listen with caution. I actually sent this conversation to my older brother who listened to it before he read Project Hail Mary, and he said that listening to this podcast didn't prevent him from enjoying the book in any way. In this episode, Andy and I get into the writing process and his creative evolution from The Martian to Project Hail Mary, the interplay between science and philosophy, his connection to the protagonist in Project Hail Mary, Ryland Grace, optimism being fearlessly weird, smoking cigs, thoughts on intelligent life, advice for young writers, and more. Without further ado, please enjoy this deep dive with Andy Weir. And that's who I really think was responsible for 9-11. Anyway, exactly. go ahead. Exactly. And so that the 9-11 podcast is over with okay, Andy Weir. So we're going to we're we're transition to Project Hail Mary. I'm going to make the very artful transition from 9-11 <laughs> to Project Hail Mary. <laughs> to 5-4, which is when Project Hail Mary releases. Exactly. So I, I just want to say to start off, I... I've been on a nonfiction bender since college for the past three or four years. As many people, I didn't really like reading in college because everything is force fed down your throat. And I got into nonfiction and it's like, here's Beowulf. Exactly. You will read Beowulf now. (laughs) Yes. Like that. Beowulf, great great Gatsby. Here's your degree. And (laughs) you have reignited my thirst for fiction and storytelling. This is Project Hail Mary is the first fiction book, science fiction particularly, that I've read in a while. And I'm about three quarters of the way through it, started reading it a few days ago, and I cannot put it down. So thank you for reigniting my passion for fiction. That's the goal. The goal is to prevent you from putting it down. Frankly, I'm sad that uh, I'm sad that it's been several days and you're not done yet. You shouldn't be able to put it down. You should be up all night. No, I, I, I should have glued it. I should have glued it to my hands. I should have taped it like kind of 40 hands yeah, from college. Yeah, Edward, 40 hands. But Project Hail Mary in one, The Martian in the other. And then I can't untape it until I finish both books. And I have to have someone turn the pages. I want you to be just like emotionally unable to part from the book. That's what I mean. 
<laughs> I, there, there's definitely going to be a breakup when, when I get to the end. It's, it's going to be a, a long winter. Oh, so I, I thought a good place to start. I was reading that Larry Niven is a sci-fi author and a person who's important to you and, and spent a lot of time on your dad's bookshelf. And as a result yeah. of that, you also combed through a good amount of Larry Niven yourself. Oh, and yeah. he also wrote a poll quote for The Martian, if I'm remembering yes. correctly. Yeah, he did. That was, a, that was a big day for me when they told me about that. I, I bet. <laughs> oh, yeah. There's another quote from Larry Niven I wanted to bring up. And, and he says, the thing about people who think they hate computers, what they really hate is lousy programmers. And I know, <laughs> I know you have a background in computer programming and software engineering, you worked for AOL during the, the dot-com web era, and you have a background in computer programming by trade. So I wanted to know, how, how does that fit into writing? Does, does computer programming inform your writing anyway? How did that whole transition happen from programming into writing? Well, I'm a very technically-minded person, obviously. And, and so I guess my, my general science approach to things applies to both professions. But really, I just always wanted to be a writer. And I, I, I love uh, software engineering. I always have. I actually kind of weighed those options when I was in college of like, what direction do I want to go here? Mm-hmm. I could either go for, you know, being a programmer or being a writer. I decided I would rather be a writer, but I also wanted regular meals. So <laughs> um, I went into programming. And um, and I really enjoyed that profession. I only left after, like, I wrote The Martian while I was a programmer, and I only left my job. I liked the job I had at the time, too. I only left it when I was just so busy with writing commitments that I, that I had to leave my job. Um, yeah, I was a happy little cubicle dweller. When you left computer programming, you, you, were full t- you started writing full time? Or what, what, was the, what was the situation? Well, I mean, I didn't leave my job as an engineer until The Martian was already, you know, on the New York Times bestseller list. Mm -hmm. So I was definitely financially stable. And I'm like, okay, now I can do that. And then I went full-time writing. And I haven't worked an honest day since then. Yeah. (laughs) That's actually perfect because I wanted to get into the romanticization of leaving your job without any sort of financial plan or backup cuz i feel i feel like a lot of things today especially in the the hustle porn entrepreneur thing is like you know quit your job tomorrow and your your dream comes true and everything and some people do that and it works that hasn't been my experience i'm i'm happily and peacefully and chaotically creating content along with a full-time job so for you i i want to to see if you well, can speak on a, a little gigolo, bit of that process. you get to set your own hours, right? Yes. So that works well with your side projects. Yes, exactly. You, yeah. you can. So you were able to be a gigolo, do the side projects, and be a computer programmer. <laughs> no, I'm talking about you. Time. I was saying like, oh, you have okay. a full-time yes. job. Oh, yeah, yeah, you... yes, yes. Yes, that, that's true. I, I don't have a client coming for at least another two hours. So, so we're good. Right, we're so fi- we're fitting this podcast. And you need to recharge from your previous one anyway. So it's all good. So uh, It takes a lot of energy. Yeah. <laughs> Takes a lot out of you. So, uh, <laughs> I've got, um, yeah. So, so back to 9 11. Anyway, you're, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, back to 9 11. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, no, you're, you're talking about the very valid point of this, this notion of quitting your job and going into your passion, you know, without 
without a safety net or anything. And I think that's complete bullshit. You should not do that. One thing I tell people, you know, I get a lot of people who ask me, hey, I want to be a writer. And how do I do that, though? It seems like such a big risk and so on. I just always want to remind everyone, your passion does not have to be your profession. They can be two completely different things. There are people out there who work as plumbers all day and then make model trains at night. And there are very happy people, you know? They don't, you don't have to, you don't have to, you know, have the thing you love most in the world be your profession. And that's like a really important thing to realize. Yeah. So, but you you should be doing something that you enjoy if possible. It just doesn't have to be your number one. So for me, number one was I wanted to be a writer, but I also very much enjoyed being an engineer. And so I was, you know, an engineer and I wrote on the side. And anyone else who wants to do, I guess, for lack of a better term, an artistic profession, whether it be physical art, music, literature, anything like that, you can do that without quitting your job and giving up your financial safety net. You don't have to dedicate 100% of your time to making your passion into a profession. You can transition into it without taking a bunch of personal financial mm-hmm. risk. Sorry, there's some schmutz on my camera. I'm just going to... Oh, yeah, go ahead. It must be from my past uh, gigolo session. Yes, right. Just yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. That's how I... I didn't always feel like that when I got into... First, I started interviewing music artists and creating content, putting out interviews, and then eventually stumbled across podcasting. And I became obsessed with monetizing it from the very beginning for about the first year, year and a half. I was like, how do I make this my full-time job? How do I get out of what I'm doing right now, which is helping other companies brand themselves and create content for their own purposes, which I do get value out of. But I realized that if I suddenly, if this suddenly becomes the beast that feeds my bank account, there's a lot of freedom that I no longer have. And so I've been thinking about like how different, like how different do I want my ideal life to be from where it is today? What, like, this is pretty good. I mean, I'm talking to someone across the United States in my free time. And then I have another job that allows me to live and eat. And so I'm like, why, like, why do I really want to change this? Is it just so I could say that I'm a podcaster full time? Like, can I just say I'm a podcaster anyway? So, yeah. And I mean, I highly recommend the same to anyone else who wants to branch out into a brand. If you want to branch out into your passion, you don't have to give up your job or your source of income or your financial security. What are some of the worst pieces of advice out there for becoming a writer and, and not? being a writer and financially supporting yourself, but just like the act of sitting down and writing something every day. What are, what are some of the worst pieces of advice, worst pieces of advice you've heard about it? That's interesting. I, uh, I can't, I, you know, it's weird. I don't see a lot of bad advice for writing. You, you see a lot of, um, good advice that you see over and over again mm-hmm. from lots of people. I guess bad advice would be, uh, things like just Write from the heart or yeah. speak your truth or say your just vague ass crap that doesn't actually help people and and makes them I've got lots of advice for writers, but I don't I don't think of I can't think of anything that's like bad advice to give. I, I have a lot of advice of here are a big list of things that you should not do. 
but mm-hmm. I think you'll find there isn't really anybody anybody out there telling you to do them. It's th- it's habits that people will fall into. Yeah, that you need to say like, hey, if you're doing this, that's a bad road to go down. Don't do that. So I'm sorry, I, I don't really have a good answer for you. No, I'm, that's it's an it's an answer, and it, it uh, leads me to my next thought, which is what what has worked for you? Maybe it's not advice that you would say this is the way that you do writing, but what are some things that have worked for you in particular? Because I know you, you've said in the past that you have a, some sort of a rolling average of number of words that you'll write per week, or you'll, you'll anything environment related or creative re- related things that are staples for you that you think this, this has helped me. And if I get away from this, it might not be such a good thing. Well, in the end, it always comes down to this, like, Writing is like anything else. It's, you know, 5% inspiration, 95% perspiration, right? It's just, you've got to, it's work, you know? It's one thing to think up an idea for a sequence of plot events for a book. It's another thing to write them. So for me, all of my challenges revolve around just motivating my lazy ass to do the work. Because I am a really lazy person when you get down to it. Super freaking lazy. I mean... If there was a, you know, if there was a global competition for world's laziest person, I wouldn't bother to go. Too much work. <laughs> you know, so it's like, <laughs> yeah. and so for me, it's really all about motivating myself. So the, the words per day, when I'm working on a first draft, I try to get a thousand words a day done. That's a thousand words per weekday. So, you know, I, and the way I actually do it is I say 5,000 words a week is what I'm shooting for. And I'm, I have to have a, at least 1,000 done by the end of Monday, at least 2,000 done by the end of Tuesday, 3,000 by Wednesday, and so on. So that means, and that's carefully constructed so that if I'm kind of on a roll on like Tuesday, I don't have any reason to stop. You know, I don't want to go like, ooh, I made 1,000 words I, I, and mm-hmm. I'm on a roll, so I want to save this for Wednesday. No, it's just like I'm now working on Wednesday's quota you know, by, yeah. by having succeeded on this. So it encourages me if I'm, if I'm doing well to just to press on. I like that. So, so it's more of a, it's like a flex. You don't, you don't have to write a thousand words a day. You, if you write 3000 on Monday, you say, okay, the next three days I have to write 2000 so I can go on a hike or play video games. One of those days, or, <laughs> yeah. you know, not that, not that that's what you want to do. Right. But I also don't always succeed. You know, I mean, it's self, it, it, one of the worst. One, one of the worst aspects to being your own boss is that uh, sometimes your boss is really lenient. <laughs> yeah. So yes, I mean, I is. don't always succeed. I won't lie. But another thing I do is I make a bunch of rules for myself, and these are again self-inflicted. Where I say, until I've made my words, you know, until I've reached my quota for that day, I have a list of things that I'm not allowed to do. I'm not allowed to do woodworking, which is my hobby. It's, it's, uh, woodworking. Yeah. Woodworking, uh, you know, like making furniture and stuff like that. I also like to make, uh, clocks, clockwork, stuff, mess around with clock mechanisms. I'm not allowed to do any of that. Not allowed to watch any form of video entertainment, not YouTube, not streaming, not TV, nothing like that. Um, not allowed to game. I'm not a video gamer myself, but I'm a big time board gamer. So I love to board game with my friends and stuff like that. Not allowed to do that till I've made my words and so on. That's when I'm working on a first draft of things. All those rules go out the window when I'm in editing mode. What do your rules look like more when you're in editing mode? Why does it change? I don't really have rules when I'm in editing mode because I'm pretty good 
at keeping my motivation up when I'm doing editing because it's a lot more fun to paint a house than it is to build a house, you know? And so it's actually, I don't have any problem keeping up the motivation when I'm doing edits for some reason. It could be because the the format is different, but when I'm editing audio, I cringe when I oh, listen God. Yeah. No, to myself. I, I'm totally like, different. I can't even do, like, I have to almost detach from, I feel like I have a split personality because I have to tell myself, and this isn't me, I'm listening to some other piece of shit blabble on, <laughs> on, a, on a podcast. And well, Everybody hates their own voice, though, I mean. Yeah, so you don't you feel that when life. you're reading, you don't feel that when you're doing your own writing. If, if you're reading no. something you don't like, you don't get like that cringy feeling oh, yeah. or something. No, you bet your ass I do. If I'm reading something I don't like, I get that cringe. And then I'm like, I don't like that. That the cringe, that must now change. You know, but I don't have the um, the weird thing that hey, everybody seems to have. Uh, it, well, sorry, everybody hates their own voice. So, editing your own voice, I can see why that would be really rough. But um, it doesn't work that way for your own written word. I put myself in the mindset of a reader. I'm, I like pretend not to know this, pretend not to know that. Try to experience the emotions the reader would experience while while reading the content try to figure out where it's starting to get boring or sag and say like, okay, how can I tighten that up? And so on. Some kind of role-playing being a reader. You're trying to feel what the reader is feeling and imagining their emotions while they're reading Project Hail Mary, for instance. You're, you're going through it and thinking, okay, how is this person going to feel when they're reading this scene? Yeah. How, how, would the they, how are they going to think? think? What are they going to expect? What's going to happen next? What are they not going to expect? Like Things like that. And it's really more of like, I don't even think about it like that on a conscious level. What I'm doing is like role-playing. I'm now like, just make-believe. I'm, I'm a guy who's never read this. Oh, uh, and I can just, you put yourself in that mindset and you don't have to constantly remind yourself, oh, this, that, and the other thing. It's just, you just pretend like you haven't, you, you don't know anything that's coming up. I don't know how to put it. That's how I edit. I, I, I role-play as a reader. That makes sense. Like you're in some way, maybe that you're not even aware of, you're able to detach from your own perception because you you have the whole story in your head, a lot of it mapped out while you're writing it, I imagine. And then you try to see it from the reader's perspective who has no idea what's going to happen 20 pages from now or even five pages from now. Yeah, exactly. And that's my uh, editing process. So also it's just a lot more fun to edit for me because... I feel like I'm making a lot more progress. Like it takes me, you know, all day to write a thousand words. It'll take me like maybe 10 minutes to edit a thousand words. I might just read through it and go like, yeah, that's good. Or here's a clumsy sentence. I'll fix that. But zoom. And so it just feels like you're really being very productive. So I I listened to the whole conversation you had with Joe, which is called Conversations with Joe on YouTube. Oh, uh, uh, Questions with Joe. In questions that case. with Joe. And, and he titled the video Conversations with Joe. And that was my oh, entrance okay. to his channel. Oh, he's great. Joe's great. He is great. I, I wrote down one of the things that you said from that interview that stood out to me. And you had said that you thought of all the things that could go wrong on the surface. This is about the Martian and realize that increasingly desperate solutions make for an interesting story. And so I was yeah. wondering, what, how are you thinking about that process of creating chaos and then providing a solution for it with Project Hail Mary? Like, what was your approach to setting things up this time around? 
Well, it actually went a little bit backwards for Project Hail Mary. For The Martian, I, as, as you know from the interview with Joe, I just, um, I was thinking about how we could put humans on Mars, what might go wrong, what if all these things go wrong, and then, like the, as I said, the increasingly desperate things you'd have to do to stay alive might make for a good story. In Artemis, my second book, I was thinking about what is humanity's first city that is not on Earth going to look like? You know, where, where is it going to be? What's it going to be like? And why would they build it at all? And so on. And that's what ultimately led me to Mars. So it generally starts with kind of science or futuristic speculation. And then, and I do that stuff all the time, but sometimes I speculate and I come up with a unique or interest or what I think is a unique or interesting story idea. And I run with it. Project Hail Mary worked kind of the other direction. After I wrote The Martian and before I wrote Artemis, I was actually working on a book called Zhek, Z-H-E-K, Zhek. And I got 70,000 words into that. For reference, The Martian is about 100,000 words. I got 70,000 words into Zhek and I realized it sucked. It was just no good. Plot wasn't coming together. Characters weren't interesting. I was still in the first act. It was going to be some gigantic tome nobody was going to want to read. And it was just a mess. And it was kind of unsalvageable. So I ditched it. And I said, like, okay, well, I, I don't even know what to do with this, but this is not working. And so that's when I ultimately wrote Artemis instead as my second book. And I'm really glad I did because Jacques was just a train wreck. So you got 70,000 words into Jacques. And then did you completely discard it? Did you take things from Jacques and you're like, this is I'm good, but I don't asked. want to put it out? Yes. I'm glad you asked. Um, There were a couple of diamonds in the rough in Jack, a couple of good concepts that I thought could could be used for stories. And one thing in Jack, I had this, uh, this is going to be a minor spoiler for Project Hail Mary, but not that big one. Sure. Was the concept of a spacecraft fuel that can basically store energy. uh, It's basically the theoretical best energy storage for a spacecraft fuel where you can propel yourself with light and it yeah. does like literal mass conversion to, to do that. And in Jack, it was a technology that some people had invented. But I, I got to thinking about that. In Jack, it was called black matter. And the cool thing about black matter was it would absorb any, any electromagnetic radiation, any, any light, any photons, anything that hit it, which is why it was called black matter because it would mm-hmm. absorb all light. And it would turn that just into mass which mm-hmm. it would store and, and get bigger and bigger. And then you could use that to release the light, basically, to propel a ship around. I thought that was kind of cool. And I got to thinking, like, well, that would be neat. Like, that would be this awesome spacecraft fuel. That would be, you could just, you could do interstellar trips with it if you wanted. And I was thinking, I wonder, I, you know, I wonder, like, how, how I could write a story about that, but without all the other stuff in check. I'm like, well... We don't have remotely the technology in modern day to invent something like that. I'm like, okay, so what if we found it somehow? It's like, okay, well, how would we find it? And then I I thought like, well, what if instead of a technology that was created, what if it was just a naturally evolved life form? And that's what I came up with the idea of, oh, okay, it's, it is a monocellular life form that does this. It collects energy, stores it, and then uses it as light to propel itself across space. I'm like, well, why would it do that? And how does it get all that energy? And those two things kind of answered each other. The way it gets all that energy is it doesn't live on a planet. It lives on the surface of stars. 
where mm-hmm. it collects enormous amounts of energy. And the reason it has that ability to propel itself through space is because that's how it spores out to other stars. It's like mold. It's not intelligent. It's just a monocellular life form doing its thing. And then I thought like, oh, now that would be cool. So now we have this naturally evolved life form that does all this stuff and, you know, lives on the surface of stars. And let's say humanity found some of that and then we could breed it up in artificial conditions yeah. and then do cool space stuff. And I, was, and I was like, oh, but they'd have to make sure to be really careful not to let it let any of it get on our sun mm-hmm. because then all hell would break loose. And I'm like, wait, all hell breaking loose is, is where stories come from. Yeah, that's the chaos. So hang on, let me back this up. It's not something we find. It's something that infects the sun. And then we figure it out and have to find a way to stop it. And then also because it's infecting the sun, we have access to it. So we can use it as spacecraft fuel to go travel in an interstellar distance. So now I need a reason for that. And so it all just started coming in backwards from that spacecraft fuel idea. You were originally looking for something that could be a sort of fuel or technology that we didn't have yet. And rather than project our own technology forward, you decided we're going to find this from somewhere else. This is going to come to us somehow and we'll use this. We'll combine it. Like we'll combine other galaxy intergalactic tech with human tech and we'll well it's use not that. tech at all it's it's oh, organisms it's, yeah it's a naturally evolved organism it's it's extraterrestrial life but it's not take me to your leader it's mold yeah you know <laughs> i well i i uh i i like how realistically you think about human interactions with aliens or just beings that aren't from earth. Cause I, I feel like a lot of times it's like this huge romanticized meeting yeah. between humans and another species that's not from here, but it's like, the, like you, you think through practically, okay, if this happens, like what would be the, the like, how would we approach atmospheres? Like what's our, time like do we even have the same concept of time are we even going to be able to see each other do they do people see on the same wavelengths so, so we're like getting just for your listeners you know maybe i want to warn them yeah yeah get, spoilers, get a, bit, a little spoiler bit of spoilers yes yes <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll uh i guess a, a more general way to say it is uh without going into any specifics in the book i i like the way that you think about the realness of humans finding other life forms like the actual like practicality of it of the interaction do you want to have a do you want to have a spoiler section or sure 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 okay it's uh it, we can we can definitely I'll, i can put it in the intro too i always record an intro for each episode so i'll warn people that there's a spoiler section as well okay. well you know or i don't know if you're gonna go spoiler alert from he- here there be spoilers or whatever but okay, I can, yes. I can use that video that you just did as the yeah. Uh, spoiler. <laughs> yeah. But yes, it, uh, within the story, our hero is in the Tau Ceti system because um, scientists on Earth notice that you know they have this infection in the sun, and also all the surrounding stars seem to have the same problem, except Tau Ceti, and so they put together this um, this mission to send people to Tau Ceti to find out why. And the name of that ship is the Hail Mary because it's a Hail Mary. It's a desperate attempt, you know, desperate last-ditch effort. And so he goes to Tau Ceti to find out why. And then when he's there, he runs into an alien spacecraft. Turns out there's 
intelligent alien life around on a planet in orbit around the star 40 Mm -hmm. Eridani. And that star is having the exact same problem, that this astrophage infestation has gotten through our local area of space. And so their star is also dimming. They're in the same boat as we are. So they, and they also noticed that Tau Ceti is not dimming. So they also sent a mission. And so um, we have, it's a first contact story. And we have like our, our main character is a human and the, well, the person who becomes the kind of deuteragonist, second most important character, mm-hmm. is an alien named, well, the human nicknames him Rocky because mm-hmm. he's basically uh, like a five-legged spider about the size of a Labrador dog, fairly small compared to the human. And um, he has like Rocky, like a kind of a Rocky crenellation looking outer exoskeleton for yeah. lack of a better term. And it actually is rocks. It's actually minerals. And that's the first contact story. And one thing that always annoyed me in first contact stories is it always seems to be some hot blue skinned chick who like looks exactly like a human, except maybe she has some forehead bumps or something. And then is completely comfortable in earth's atmosphere, pressure, eating our food, everything. Right. And that always bugged me. Mm-hmm. The kind of Star Trek, I mean, don't get me wrong, I absolutely love Star Trek, but this notion that everybody lives in the same environment. Yeah. <laughs> I also like how in most UFO stories or other other first contact stories, it's that a lot of times aliens are so curious about humans, they just want to study us and we're so interesting. And there's there's not really a lot of times any selfish motive on the part of the people who are come coming to visit us. But in this case, Rocky has a very selfish uh, motive for wanting to reach out and talk to the protagonist from Earth. He's not like, oh, I, like humans are so fascinating. I can't like keep right, away like, from humans. It's like, I need to talk to you. He yeah, has a reason we, for it. We, we need to work together to solve our common problem, which is what that's what it's about. And it's actually like the main, the main bulk of the book is the story of a friendship. It's like these two become like bros. It's a, it's a, it's a buddy cop movie basically, you know? And, um, yeah. And uh, the feedback I'm getting is great. I, I never, I didn't realize how much people were going to love Rocky. Like, yeah, they love Rocky. They're like, I like your main character, but Rocky's my man. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's not, you mentioned, you know, he's a, he's a, looks like a spider, size of a Labrador, five arms. He's not a very physically appealing specimen. People chew away spiders on earth and you can't <laughs> yeah. help, you can't help but feel some sort of bond with Rocky in the book. Well, he's a very likable mm-hmm. critter. Also, uh, back to what I was saying earlier, is like it always bothered me how, you know, aliens are in, in other stories are completely comfortable in our atmosphere and pressure. There is like no part of our environments that really can be shared with Rocky and Ryland. Iridians, that's the species that, well, mm-hmm. Ryland gave them that name. Um, uh, Rocky's race lives at 29 atmospheres of pressure, so 29 times Earth's atmosphere in an in an atmosphere of of almost pure ammonia, and also at about 200 degrees, 210 degrees Celsius, which is like 400 something Fahrenheit. 
that's the just yeah, the a ambient hot. air temperature. Yeah. And so and also there's no free oxygen in in Rocky's atmosphere in the atmosphere he's from. And so his body never needed to evolve to deal with that. So like if you put a human in Rocky's environment, they'd die like immediately. You're being exposed to pure like, well, the temperature would burn you to death, the ammonia would kill you to death, and then the pressure would squish you to death. Mm-hmm. And Rocky, in our environment, would immediately, like, have, well, first off, he'd be freezing to death, and then also he would literally burst into flames because mm-hmm. he, he himself is hot, physically hot, because that's his natural body temperature, and there's a bunch of parts of his body that are oxidizable material, that they didn't need to evolve yeah. not to have because, in fact, Rocky is is mortified when he learns that Ryland lives in an environment that is like where we have so much oxygen. Yeah. Oxygen is like an incredibly dangerous element. It's basically like mm-hmm. you live, you know, you 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 live in a planet that's, you know, surrounded by this unbelievably dangerous and deadly element. I mean, yeah. it just causes fire to happen. And he's like, yeah, sometimes we get fires. Yeah. Okay. So sometimes at any given time, parts of your planet are on fire. <laughs> yeah. Like, there no. is never a, there's never a moment where there is no part of your planet that is on fire. <laughs> you know? Yeah. No, it, it's, cra- <laughs> it's crazy. Now that you're saying it, that one element that is incredibly life-giving to us could be poisonous and instant death for someone else who comes to the planet. And we kind of just accept that this is what it happens is what when is. you live yeah. on a planet with oxygen, the, like things set on fire all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Things catch fire. No big. Yeah. But like, imagine if we didn't need oxygen to live, if we breathed nitrogen or something and it weren't omnipresent in our atmosphere, um, it would definitely be illegal. Like it would be a controlled, I mean, it's like dynamite. It would be, it would be very, it would be illegal to own without all sorts of special licenses. <laughs> People would be on the corner slinging weed and oxygen tanks out of their, well, of their, oxygen, uh, it wouldn't be a drug. It would be a, a yeah. weapon. It'd be a weapon. Yeah. Yeah. It's like dynamite. <laughs> it's wild to think about. Yeah. The protagonist of the book, Ryland, he, he goes from, a teacher to thrust into this situation in space where humanity is relying on him and his whole world is shaken up. Like he goes from kind of relaxed and, you know, doing a job on earth to having his whole world blown apart into things that he never imagined were possible. For you, you were working as a computer programmer. (laughs) You were writing, you were writing the, the Martian, releasing it as a serial and eventually, you know, every, everything happens where it's downloaded organically. You eventually get the book deal. And I uh, remember hearing you say that the book deal and the movie deal happened in the same week. So essentially yeah, your, entire, your entire world, you go from one position, you're shaken up, and then you're thrust into the spotlight as an author. And it's, uh, the, the mind behind the Martian, the movie as well, which also did incredibly well. Is there a connection between, it would be hard to be, it would be hard to imagine that there's not a connection between you and Ryland because you wrote him, but it, it, yeah. like, were you, were you, gra- were you pulling on that experience at all where, with his characterization? 
You know, I hadn't thought about that, but there may be some of that. You know, there may be some of that notion. Give a man a book, you entertain him for a night. Teach a man to write, you give him crippling self-doubt for life, right? (laughs) And so I live as a permanent resident of imposter syndrome city, right? Mm -hmm. I wrote a book, out of the gate, incredibly popular, stuff like that. Don't feel like I earned it. Don't feel like I'm actually that good a writer. I just feel like I lucked into it, right? And so, yeah, I can definitely see, you know, this is in retrospect, it wasn't intentional, but yeah, I, I, probably there is some, some of that in, in uh, when I put the character of Ryland together. He's a guy who, he's not the best candidate for this situation. Uh, you're only, you're not done with the book yet, so I don't want to spoil things for you either, but he, he was definitely not like the first choice. And he's like, he's there because, because of various reasons that meant he had to be the the one, but he wasn't, uh, he, you know, he, he he was not the perfect candidate. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> for this mission. <laughs> yeah, with imposter syndrome, it's a bitch, and I feel it on a small, much smaller level because I, I have nowhere near the reach of yourself, and you know, oh, I, 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 I. Pre- like I see evidence of myself being able to be serviceable as a podcaster when I listen to past <laughs> episodes and then right before it's time to record another podcast, my mind goes to like, I don't care if you've done this 150 times, 200 times, whatever, like you're not, this is going to be a train wreck. You have no business doing this. Like, like it's how do you... It's only a matter of time before everyone realizes. Yeah. You know. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I'm, exactly I'm, yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm like, this person is talking to me. Like, like what, like what, what is going on? How, how do you, how do you get through that level of imposterity? Is that a word? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. It is now. <laughs> imposterity to be able to create freely without the, the shackles of imposter syndrome. If I ever find that out, I'll let you know. <laughs> yeah, please. I have never, let's see, I have always felt that people think I am a better writer than I am. I've always felt like, you know, ever since The Martian came out and that my actual authoring skill is like here and the opinion of my authoring skill is up here. And so I always feel like I'm working really hard to try to get better enough Mm -hmm. to get a little closer to what people think I can do. What's the difference between, for you, when you hear what other people say about your writing and you look at your writing from your own perspective, what do you think that they're not getting right or they're overshooting? Well, one thing is, like, I am not very good at, uh, well, so every, every time I write a book, I try to challenge myself to do something that I don't think I'm very good at. One thing I, I don't, think I was very good at uh, at first after writing The Martian. I was like, people say The Martian is great, but there is zero character depth. Like, all you know about Mark Watney is he's a dude who didn't want to die. That's not a lot of character depth. Most people don't want to die, right? And also, he doesn't undergo any change or growth as a person. He's exactly the same at the end of the story as he was at the beginning, Mm -hmm. right? So it's just, it's not that kind of book. It's not about a personal journey. But, you know, character and character depth and personality, these are the things that carry, these matter a lot in writing. And I have like zero skill in that area. I'm a good plot-based guy. Like I'm good at coming up with situations to put characters in and then try to get them to get out of them. But I don't 
you know, having character growth. So with Artemis, my second book, I worked really hard on character depth and growth with the character of Jazz Bashara. And I kind of overshot. A lot of people didn't like Artemis. I don't know if you've read it. I haven't read it yet. You haven't. That's fine. Um, you're dead to me. But yeah, uh, podcast over. Podcast over. <laughs> In Artemis, so my main character is a woman named uh, Jasmine Jazz Bashara. And I think I overshot the mark with her. I really wanted to give her a lot of character depth, complexity, and then have her undergo growth during the course of the, um, the book. So Mark Watney was always based on the idealized version of me. He, he has all the traits about myself that I admire in myself, all the things I like about myself, and none of my flaws, right? So he's, he's clever and sarcastic. He doesn't have my various neuroses and bad habits, and so he doesn't have any of that. He's the idealized version of me. Whereas Jazz was more, very much more like the, the darker sides of me, not dark as in evil, but just the less awesome aspects of me, how I spent a large portion of my life just not living up to my potential and just laziness has been an issue for me and, and stuff like that. And so for Jazz, I created a character who's very smart and a smart ass and very clever, but she is also kind of her own worst enemy. She keeps, she makes bad decisions that lead her into problems. And then she undergoes character growth. She realizes that she's been doing bad things. And then at the end, she's altruistic. She's also a little selfish too, is another issue. And then by the end, she's altruistic. She's trying to, you know, she attempts to sacrifice herself to save the city. And, and she had a bad relationship with her father, which she makes up for by acknowledging that she was... A, anyway, so it's all this stuff. And problem is I overshot the mark. I made jazz, well, for a lot of readers unlikable. She was just so flawed that people are like, oh God, I just, why should I root for this person? She's just a screw up and she makes bad decisions. All, all the problems she's facing are problems of her own design. Mm -hmm. And like, she's pissing me off, you know, by, <laughs> and so I learned a lot about that. I learned, I learned, okay, you got, you can, flawed main characters are good, but if you go too far, you'll end up, you'll make the reader just, you'll alienate the reader from the character. And I think I, I did that. A lot of people loved her. A lot of people just like, yeah, Jazz, kick ass. I love her. Yeah. But other people are just like, ugh. I, I kept wanting to scream at her, quit fucking up. Yeah. <laughs> so from the Martian to Artemis, you wanted to improve the, the characterization and the way that the character changes throughout the Personality book. Personality and Personality. depth. Depth, like complexity, and then also character growth. And so from Artemis to Project Hail Mary, what was your main focus? Were you trying to like scale back the flaws or what, what yes. were you focusing well, basically, on? Basically, um, so my goal in Project Hail Mary was, well, I, I, I had what I considered a kick-ass situational plot. So the challenges that, that he was going to face and the things that were going to happen, I thought, this will carry the reader. This is good. But I also wanted to make a character who is flawed, but likable. <laughs> and so Grace's flaws are, are like, his flaws are that at times he's a little naive. At times he's a little maybe a little too trusting when he shouldn't be and, and these sorts of things. And also, uh, well, he has character growth that I don't want to spoil for you uh, later in the book. Also, another challenging thing for me has always been character interplay, like character interactions, which is, of course, a very important aspect of writing. And um, I've always felt like, you know, in The Martian, there's a lot of scenes at NASA 
where, you know, the NASA folks are talking to each other. And I gave them all kind of slightly unique personalities, but I couldn't really service the characters because I didn't want to spend a lot of time there. And also I suck at it. So mm. <laughs> there's not a lot of differentiation between the NASA characters and their conversations are all just kind of blend together. And it's like, who said this? Who said that? I don't care. It's an exposition dump anyway. And so I wanted to, the concept of personal interactions among people who are very different personalities. And I yeah. got that in two places in Project Hail Mary. And the Project Hail Mary, for those of you who haven't read it and have decided to listen to a monumentally spoilerific uh, uh, podcast about it, it has two main time settings. There's there's the, the present where it's our hero on the ship trying to do his mission. And then he has flashbacks to the past. And in the segments in the past, he does a lot of interaction with a character named Strat. She's the person who's been put in charge of basically making the Hail Mary project happen. And in the present, he has a lot of interactions with Rocky, the alien. Yeah. And so I get... I got my fix of character interactions and uh, I, I feel like I did a good job on that this time. So we'll see what the readers have to say. Also, a side note, I am a huge hypocrite because I frequently say how much I... I said same. I'm also a huge hypocrite. Yeah. I'm a huge hypocrite because I always say how much I hate flashbacks in stories. Hate them, hate them, hate them. And then here this book is like half flashback. So I'm like a complete hypocrite. But in my defense, I'll say this. What I hate about flashbacks is they're often used as a tool for exposition. So oftentimes you'll be watching a movie, cool stuff's happening, cool stuff's happening, now we have yeah. a flashback to how this guy met his wife and it's just a bunch of boring-ass crap that doesn't advance the plot. It's just there to tell me about his character. Yeah, we had to fill 22 minutes for the episode, so here's or, like a three-minute flashback, yeah. Or, or they just wanted to convey information to you in a way that was easy for the writer, you know? It's like, oh, okay, so we're going to have a flashback now. There's an interesting plot that's advancing that stops dead so that we can have this flashback, which is kind of like being told, you know, which is kind of like when you're 10 years old, you're out playing with your friends and your mom tells you to come clean your room. It's like, it's that feeling. It's like, ugh. Yeah. So my story is all the flashbacks, the flashbacks also advance the plot. That's the important mm -hmm. thing. Like things are happening in the flashbacks that solve mysteries or open new mysteries or the reader is, is hope if I did it right, they are as engaged in the flashback sequences as they are in the present sequences. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I would say that's the case for sure. That's the hope. <laughs> you, you, uh, so you said that your goal was to make Ryland flawed, but likable. Yeah. And... I can't help but think that he's flawed and likable or just like yeah. he's likable because he is flawed. I wouldn't like him if he knew exactly how to get out of every single problem or he was right. fixing everything perfectly. And I kind of had a, I, I was thinking a lot about this during quarantine because I was by myself most of the time and also trying to date online with dating apps and oh, stuff like that. Because I was yeah, like, friend of I mine like is yeah, I was like, I like people. Now, I'm thinking about it. I'm sitting by myself. I'm like, what did I think of this date? I have more time to reflect on it. And I'm like, I like this person and their flaws are standing out to me much more than the, you know, Instagram-y stuff that they do. <laughs> I just like, I, I, the little quirks or maybe the weird 
shit about her is what pulls me in. And so I feel like there's a, people are always trying to get rid of their imperfections, which I am no stranger to. But when I'm meeting other people, I I say, oh, I like this person because they're weird in their own way. That's why I want to hang out with them more because they're not like every other person I met. And so, yeah, flaw, I think he's flawed and likable or likable because he is flawed, not uh at least to me, I don't think he's likable despite being flawed. I, I I see that kind of going hand in hand or en- enhancing each other. Cool. I'm glad. Yeah. So I just, uh, yeah. So this time that that was a big priority for me. And also, I mean, Rocky also has character depth to a certain degree. You can't really know exactly how an alien thinks and stuff. And yeah. there's a language barrier between them, but they do, but they are able to talk pretty well after a while. Mm-hmm. But even yeah, then, they, there's... They, yeah, they, they, they figure out their own little way to, uh, to do it. Yeah. So, so, um, speaking of language, the, the protagonist, Rylan, he, he has soft language, I, I would say. Like yes, he doesn't, he, he doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't swear. curse. Yeah. And, and you find out what the reason for that is in the book. So for you, if you woke up in a situation like Ryland and, and he's using these clues about himself, like soft language to try to like basically piece together how he got to where he is. What are, what do you think some clues about yourself that you would realize like, Oh, I do this. I must be a writer or, Oh, I do this. <laughs> like, are, are there anything, any things you suspect that would be early clues to like, I'm Andy Weir, the, the author of the Martian Artemis and project Hail Mary. I would probably never realize that I was a writer. The way I think about things, I would probably think that I was an engineer or a scientist. I'd be like, oh, I know a lot of physics and science and stuff. That must be what I do. <laughs> so so the based on your initial thoughts, you you think very scientifically and it would take you a long time at least to figure out you were a writer or you, you, were, uh, yeah, you had a creative somebody, job. Yeah. And if somebody came up and said like, oh yeah, you're a, you're an author, you write science fiction novels. I'd be like, <laughs> no, come on. Really? Yeah. What? What do I do? Really? <laughs> but you, you'd have to figure out eventually that you were a writer in some capacity. You, you, you'd feel some craving to, to write or do yeah, something maybe. creative or you don't Although you don't if think- I was in a situation like that, I would, I probably wouldn't see most of my creativity comes when I'm bored, you know? daydreams are kind of the beginning of all my stories. And if I was in a situation like Ryland, I wouldn't have time for that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's true. It is, it is, uh, it is, there is a very hard limit on, on time that kind of sucks any, uh, peripheral creativity out of you or just doing, doing shit for fun. Something that I want to get into that you alluded to before is your, optimism in humanity your people seem to be generally good in the things that you write and there's a there's a fundamental goodness to the characterization so my question with all of the negative kind of black mirror-esque uh a sci-fi stories is like why why do you choose to have that or, or what makes you, what draws you to the optimism with sci-fi, scientifically accurate science fiction? Because I think optimism is accurate. I think that if you compare any two years in history that are like, say, a hundred years apart, 
you would rather live in the later hundred years. You would you would rather live in the in the latter date. So I think we can agree that 2020 sucked, right? Like the year. Yes. It sucked. Yeah. Now, would you rather live through 2020 again or live through 1920? 2020, 100%. Yeah. Yeah. I myself have gone my whole life without ever seeing a no colored sign in a store window. Mm-hmm. Right? I've never, and, and none of my friends have died of typhus. And I don't know anyone who was paralyzed or disfigured by polio. It's like, it's humanity just gets better over time. Like, pretty much without exception. Now, over very short periods of time, yeah, things can get worse before they get better, but they always eventually get better. Like, I would rather be alive in 1935 than 1942, for instance, because World War II, right? But I would rather be alive in, you know, 1955 than 1935. Yeah, yeah, when, when and, when and I I'd was, rather be alive in 1942 than 1842, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, so it's like we have these little blips of huge peaks or really deep Problems. valleys, but on the, the in the long term growth in uh, people treating each other, it yeah, tends to go up. A, it always goes so up. So it's and and it's not just the march of technology; it's also just humanity and culture and how we interact with each other, we're also, we are getting more and more civilized over time. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if that's, uh, you can consider cultures to be a technology, right? You can consider ideology to be a technology because it gets refined and experimented with and then refined again over time. And so... You, you can think of that as another technology that's emerging. And, and as for Black Mirror, I, I'm kind of on record where I think the, right, the people who write Black Mirror, are, are, they do a really good job, and, and the, they're very good writers, but the overall premise it drives me crazy. It's always just basically technophobia. Mm-hmm. It's the idea that technology is bad, or, or, or at the very least, it has such a dark side that, you know, this and so on. Whereas I, I hold the completely opposite opinion. Uh, a question I often like to ask uh, people is, okay, can you name a technology, any technology that has done more harm than good to humanity? Any technology that's done more harm than good? To humanity. To humanity. Yeah. So people say like well, nuclear well, I feel bombs. Like the number- yeah, nuclear. Well, nuclear would have popped into my head a couple months Except ago before nuclear energy. I looked into it. Yes, exactly. Nuclear energy. Social yeah. media pops into there, but the only reason why I'm able to do what I do and put out podcasts is because of that. So it's like, and and yeah. on a greater level too, people being able to communicate. So and and yeah. a democratization of free speech and entire nations that never really had access to outside information before now can communicate directly. It's just like anything that you think of as a negative effect of technology, if you look at the technology itself, it is probably doing more good than harm. Now, when you start talking about things like weapons of war, okay, yeah, I mean, this is a gun. It does not, its purpose is to kill people. Mm-hmm. Does it do more harm than good? You could argue that, but then you start getting into the philosophical concept of how many lives have been saved by us having those weapons at our disposal and then, but, and therefore not needing to use them, right? 
Yeah, no, it, it's hard because how, how do you measure how many people haven't died? How many, right. how, how many people haven't yeah. been killed? It's a, it's a hard thing to, to measure. And going back to the, the good versus bad, I guess, even, even the technologies that people may think are bad today, like something like social media or, or Facebook specifically comes up a lot with malicious intent and uh, swaying uh, political incentives or disinformation. Yeah, the, the, the fundamental building blocks of Facebook were started by a few guys that, you know, wanted to have some fun and fuck around and build something cool. And those are, those were like the initial incentives for building something that they could not have imagined would turn into the Facebook that it is today. It was like people that generally wanted to do good shit that was also cool and excited them to work on it. And then it starts to turn into or evolve into things that may well, have some negative things uh, even, even things associated. that turned even things that turned out to be incredibly negative have actually done more good than than harm like you think of things like okay what about heroin right you're like well heroin was one part of the opiate pharmaceutical technology and although we have an opioid crisis and epidemic going on they have done more good than harm in terms of of pain relief for billions of people, right? Mm -hmm. And then also you could say things like, all right, tobacco, like smoking, like that has been, you know, horrifically bad. But actually in a roundabout way, I suspect smoking and tobacco will ultimately save more lives in the long run because it's kind of phasing out now as a habit. Mm -hmm not worldwide, but certainly in America, but the knowledge that we have gained about cancers and lung cancers and carcinogens and stuff like that will last forever. And so the lessons that we learned from that are probably going to save countless more lives in the future. Sure. And you also have the evolution of the actual drug, like in nicotine, you go from smoking the actual tobacco to to cigarettes to vapes to isolating nicotine and in an attempt to make it safer. I don't know how safe it actually is with some of these. Like I used to dip all the time. I used to put tobacco on my lip, like pouches. I played baseball in college. So that just like went with the territory. You play baseball in college, you dip and it was fun. Like I had a good time. It was a period in my life where I was like, this is a fun thing to do. I'm just going to do it. (laughs) And uh, stopped when I was done for the most part. But (laughs) then there's also like these pouches coming out that are supposedly pure nicotine that don't have some of the cancerous additives that are in tobacco. And that's yet to be seen the effects with that. And like, why couldn't that be something like heroin? It sounds crazy to say, but like, what if people could isolate some sort of widely distributed drug that was kind of like heroin that didn't have (laughs) the, the overdose, uh, capability of the like it couldn't kill you it seems dumb to say now but it's like that kind of the direction that tobacco went where it's like we're, we're just going to keep taking out all the bad shit and all <laughs> the bad shit and like try to sell it to people i mean they do have that with heroin it's actually just called uh, diamorphine which is what heroin actually is um the the chemical and they use diamorphine to treat heroin addiction because it's heroin. So it works really good at that. Yeah. <laughs> but it doesn't have like all the crap that street dealers put in it. And the main thing that actual heroin does to you is cause constipation. 
And uh, the main way people die from heroin is by overdosing. I mean, it's not a mm-hmm. good habit. Don't it, you shouldn't do it. Yes, I am. <laughs> like, I am anti heroin. <laughs> yes, I want to be clear that I'm anti heroin. But it's really yeah. interesting that that heroin itself it, it was invented as a painkiller. Mm-hmm. It was invented by Bayer. It, it was a brand name. Yeah, it's, it started out as as something where people wanted to do Bayer. good. Yeah, it, it was like aspirin, you know. <laughs> do you have experiences where taking drugs or smoking weed, drinking a little bit, where that enhances your creativity in any way, or it it didn't work? Because I've done, I've smoked some weed and tried to make some stuff. I, I've drank and tried to make some stuff. Like I'm kind of in between on what it actually does and what it what it doesn't do. So I'm curious of if you've had any experience. I never really liked weed that much. Like I, you know, I smoked it a bit in college here and there, but it just never, I never enjoyed it. I drank, well, I went through a period of my life where I drank pretty heavily to the point that I was like, Hmm, am I an alcoholic? I'm not sure, (laughs) but it definitely doesn't enhance my creativity. It just makes me lazy and makes it harder for me to get any work done. Cause I just don't, I, I'm, I'm like, I've got a buzz on and I'm like, nah, I don't want to work. I'm just yeah. going to goof off. Actually, I was drinking so much. I, I got into mixology for a while. I was like, I got really into making drinks and yeah. stuff. And so I was, I was, you know, at one point I was at the doctor just for an annual checkup. And she said, uh, how many drinks do you have a week? And I was like, a week. Okay. She's like, the fact that you have to do a lot of math for that is troubling me, you know? And uh, and so I, I realized I was having like maybe five drinks a night, like like five yeah. cocktails a night. And she's like, okay. Throwing them back. Yeah, that's that's a lot. And I'm like, well, it doesn't, you know, I don't really get drunk. And she's like, that's because you've built up a huge alcohol tolerance, you know? And I was like, and she's like, you should not drink that much. It's bad for you, you know, duh. And And there's alcoholism in my family. And so I was like, uh-oh, I better better look into this. So I decided I'm going to do an experiment. Just going to try an experiment. I'm going to go a week without drinking any alcohol and find out if that's difficult. Like if that turns out to be a real problem for me, then that means I have a problem, right? Mm -hmm. Well, I went a week without drinking alcohol and it was no problem. Yeah. It was no problem at all. And then, so I said like, well, then why the hell am I drinking so much? Like I'm not an alcoholic. I can, I can go without drinking. And I'm I'm drinking like 10,000 calories a week that it's just going to go to fat. And I'm just like, why don't I not do that? And so I haven't really been drinking much since then. I'll have like maybe one beer a month or something like that. And so I guess I'm, I'm boringly clean. I'm, uh... <laughs> yeah, well, may, may, maybe the, maybe the boringness is what allows you to create such chaotic worlds and bring them to solutions. The boringness yeah. and the routine, which... I kind of I'm not feel against like, it, by the way, for any any of your listeners. I have no problem with people no, yeah. smoking weed or 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 cigarettes, for that matter, or boozing up, whatever. Do what you want, but for whatever reason, I never enjoyed weed, and I I really enjoyed alcohol. But then I realized I was starting to take it too far, so dialed it back. I was a I was a cigarette smoker for uh, for many years. For uh, eleven mm-hmm. years, actually, I was a hardcore smoker. I mean, it was like pack and a half a day. I was yeah, on wow. the yeah. I was on the express train to lung cancer, and uh, uh, quitting that was very hard. 
Did you um, find that the the nicotine boost helped you focus? Because I have a lot of experience with the dipping aspect when I was studying in college or when I was trying to write a paper, like throw a dip in. It's like, I felt like I got a second wind when I had nicotine. Oh, it's, a, it's an upper, right? Nicotine is a stimulant. And yeah, no, I, I, I don't know. I just really loved it. I loved smoking, man. If they cured cancer tomorrow, I'd buy a pack of cigarettes later that day. Yeah, no, it... it <laughs> I miss it. I haven't smoked in whew, coming on twenty years. So it's been almost twenty years since I since I last had a cigarette. So I think it's safe to say I kicked the habit. But man, I still miss it. When I walk by, you know, someone on the sidewalk smoking, I walk through the cloud mm-hmm. and I smell it. I'm like, oh, <laughs> you know. Yeah. No, I, I, uh, I, I, I guess I'm, I, I'm probably lucky genetically and and that I don't have much history. I don't, I don't believe I have much alcoholism or any cigarette smokers in my family or maybe one, but I feel like I've always been able to kind of like dabble in and out of drinking. And I feel like it's not better or worse creating for me. I, I feel like when I have one or two drinks in me or I'll smoke a cigarette every once in a while, it's like a different sort of thinking. It's like I'm going laterally in some aspect. It's not like I'm making something better. It's like I have something in me that's forcing me or, or allowing the doors to open in some sort of way. And it's fun to do every once in a while. And I've always had this thing in the back of my head where I know maybe it's the way my parents raised me that, and I'm not remembering everything my parents said to me when I was younger, but I'm just like scared shitless of making something like that a habit. And so it's not like any moral thing where I'm like, this is bad. I can't do it. It's just like something internally keeps me from making it a, a habit. And so since I have that within me, I have enjoyed kind of delving into that world, using it creatively every once in a while, and then, you know, ripping a cig, like writing something. And <laughs> I, I just enjoy having something. I, I, I enjoy having a coffee during the day. If I'm oh, recording yeah, a podcast, caffeine, I go, caffeine, I, 100%. I mean, line caffeine. <laughs> yeah. It's like, and uh, if I'm, if I'm writing something and it's like eight o'clock at night, I'm like, do I want to have a decaf coffee or should I have one pour of whiskey? I'm just like, I need, I need something in my system. So why not have a glass of whiskey? Yeah. It's like an ignition. In a weird way, I consider smoking to have been very good for me in the long term because I took up smoking in college, which right there is weird. Most people start smoking in high school or whatever, but I took up, I I didn't smoke until long after it was legal for me to smoke, (laughs) which is weird. But I took up smoking in college because I was hanging out with a bunch of people who smoked. And I'm like, let me try one of those. And like, I got hooked on it like right away, like so fast. I, I went from like, never had a cigarette to, I need a cigarette in like two weeks, you know? And then from then on, I was like a a regular smoker, you know, pack day, then up to pack and a half a day. On bad days when I'm sad or whatever, it'd be like two packs a day. And then many attempts to quit and just failure after failure. And I finally did manage to quit. But while I was in college, I I hung out with a group of people and they, they did lots of drugs. Like, hardcore drugs and stuff too. And I, uh, I always said no to all of that, everything but pot. I mean, I, I said no to all of the other stuff because I'm like, I saw how quick I got addicted to nicotine. Like I have an addictive personality. I know that now. Like I, yeah. I went from, I went from zero to give me a goddamn cigarette in two weeks. And 
And so I'm not gonna, I'm not touching any of that harder stuff. I'm, I'm, I'm out. <laughs> yeah. So I think that was great because it made me never even consider that stuff. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm in the same boat. I'd never tried a cigarette until I was maybe 19 or 20 years old. And as a dipper, I, I enjoyed it. It might have been, it was probably worse in a way because you can dip inside and no one will know you just got to spit in yeah. a bottle i could i could be in class i could be in the library i could be at practice you just you bring it wherever you want and then i remember the first time standing outside a bar in richmond where i went to school and someone offered me a cigarette and i took a hit of it and i was kind of drunk and then i felt the buzz and i was like oh now i really feel this I'm one puff of a cigarette could enhance your buzz that much this is yeah that wild. goes away pretty quick but <laughs> exactly yeah it does <laughs> it does but like but, i uh, understand that hook into it and people are like oh cigarettes are disgusting i'm like have you ever had a pull of a cigarette with three or four drinks in you like that shit just like brings you to <laughs> another level it's i i can understand how people get hooked to it this episode of uh, your podcast is all very pro heroin, pro nicotine. Yes, <laughs> pro- <laughs> yeah, that's, that's gonna that's gonna be the the title that's for this episode. Headline. It's gonna be nine eleven cigarettes <laughs> yeah, <slash> and heroin. <laughs> get a cigarette and a dirty needle. Let's have some fun. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Kids, don't smoke. No, no, I my my God. I mean, I was I I. One of the things that made me decide to really work on quitting smoking and what, and I, the time I actually was successful was one time I was like, I was like, let's see, it was like almost 20 years ago. So I was in my late 20s and like I was crossing just a four lane street with a walk signal and it turned into the blinky hand. And so I had to run for the second half. And mm-hmm. I was so winded after that that I did like hands on my knees, thought I was going to puke and stuff like that. It's like, I ran across half of a street and now I can't breathe. Smoking is bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's bad, is, okay. And that made, <laughs> was that the, the end all be all for 20 years? That was the instance? No, I, I then came up with a plan that I, that I rigidly implemented, which was like, all right, I'm going to start by smoking a pack a day cut myself down to a pack a day for a week and then 19 cigarettes a day for a week and then 18 cigarettes a day for a week and so on until I got down to one cigarette a day and then zero cigarettes a day. And that worked. But So it, you yeah. really, you, you weaned it off methodically. I weaned it off, yeah. That was, my, that was my plan. I don't know if it's a good way or a bad way, but it's what worked. No, back yeah, then, I, guess the, the, I guess the thing that matters is that it works. That's the most important. Yeah, whatever works. So to transition on finesse like t- this is a total non-finesse tra- yeah unfinessedly apropos of nothing <laughs> yes apropos of nothing i have uh w- one of the points in the book that that stood out to me and, and i'm i'm going to try not to spoil the specifics behind it but the, the protagonist finds himself in zero G and there's this moment of violent anxiety that I felt at my core because when I have panic attacks, I feel, or even when I feel my general baseline of anxiousness go up, I feel this weird combination of a lot of pressure in some parts of my body, like my chest and my throat and then weightlessness in others, like my limbs. Like, I'm just like, yep. this, this is a concern. Why don't I feel weight in this part of my body? And why don't I feel pressure? And then that starts the loop of, am I dying? Is my throat closing up? Like, like all well, this stuff. First off, 
let me say, I'm really sorry to hear you experience that level of anxiety. And second off, bro fist, not alone. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> right I'll, I'll do right it right on camera. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, bro fist. No, I've, I've struggled with anxiety my whole life. I'm very open about it. And um, I urge anybody, you and anyone listening, to, uh, to get help. Basically, um, I know that sounds like a PSA, but it really, it matters. It's very difficult to deal, uh, practically impossible to deal with anxiety completely on your own. If you broke your leg, you wouldn't, you wouldn't wing it, right? You'd go to a doctor. Mm -hmm. So one thing that I found that was a real problem for me for most of my life was I figured, well, there's nothing actually wrong. This is just who I am, you know, and that's, this is what it's like to be me. And it sucks, but there it is. No, it doesn't have to be that way. If, you're, if your life is miserable because of anxiety or depression, that can be addressed. It's not an easy magic solution, but it can be addressed. You start, you go to therapy, you go to a psychiatrist who will maybe see if you have like a chemical situation going on in your brain and prescribe you meds that can help even things out. Again, the meds aren't a magical solution. Just like if you broke your leg, you get a cast and then a bunch of physical therapy, you know? I guess I, I, I would really love if I could wave a magic wand to destigmatize anxiety and depression. It, it, it really sucks it, that it, to go through. And believe me, I know. I spent a year of my life just in the dumps, like I, back when I was in my 20s. And I mean, I, I was just clinically depressed. I mean, I couldn't, I'd sleep 15 hours a day. I was a mess. And I wish that, I don't know, I wish somebody had been there to just kind of make me go to get help. I feel for that. And I also consider myself lucky in anxiety from an anxiety standpoint, because I have had periods where for months at a time, I'm in a hyper anxious state, but I haven't been in anything prolonged where, like you said, you were sleeping for 15 hours a day, it was a, a year. Like I've well, that was a depression, depression, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. thing. I, I, Anxiety and depression are basically two sides of the same coin. Yeah, I think it's the same set of fucked up chemicals in your brain. Yeah, I, I've always had some sort of uh, rebalancing. I've I've had periods where it's it's rebalanced, and I yeah, when I, when I read that scene in the book, I really identified with, and I don't know if it was intentional from writing about experience with anxiety yourself oh, yeah. or kind of, <laughs> kind of pulling on that. Cause I was like, Oh my God, like I, I'm picturing myself the first moment where things, you know, drop to zero G in space and how, besides the whole mission, like how, how am I going to deal with that from an anxiety standpoint? Because first you think, Oh my God, this does not feel right. And then you start to think, if I was in that situation, I would start to think, all right, if I don't get this under control, humanity is fucked. And right. then like that start that starts the loop of like, that's making me more anxious. And then like humanity is more fucked. And then it's like, do I just <laughs> do I just curl up in a ball floating Vicious around the lab cycle. as humanity, you know, slowly fades away? And well, for me, the worst part wouldn't be the zero G. It would be those the last minute or two before zero G, knowing that it's gonna happen and just like this is going to feel like I just fell off a cliff and I can't do anything to stop it. And here we go, yeah. <laughs> you know? So how has your relationship with anxiety evolved in your life? Uh, Cause I'm curious, I, 
for me, it's gradually getting less and less shitty. That's how I describe it. Yeah. Like, th- like I've, there's no magic pill for me, but it's like I get more apt at diffusing anxious situations and coming back to a functional normal. So for, for you, I'm curious how it evolved. Well, I get, I guess, well, for starters, I take an anti-anxiety med every day. I take Zoloft, which is actually an antidepressant, but antidepressants work for anxiety issues because, again, same set of bad chemicals. And so that helps. And it was weird because it took me like six weeks to even notice that mm-hmm. it was doing anything. But I was like driving somewhere and I was thinking, huh, last time I was here, I was really stressed out about how, you know, how to get off at this exit and how to make the turn and stuff. And this time I don't, it doesn't bother me. And that's mm-hmm. like that. And so that helps a lot. Also, I do therapy every week. Every week yeah. I have a therapy session. Uh, you know, remote now, but works great. And I don't know. It's just there's something about getting older. It's just the older you get, the less you give a crap. It's <laughs> it's kind of nice. <laughs> Everything just gets less intense. I mean, I'm pushing fifty. I don't know how old you are. You're young. I'm, I'm twenty. I'm twenty seven. So yeah, like a lot of times when I have a panic attack, I, I think my thoughts go towards death. Where I'm like, I know I'm not dying on a rational level, but I feel like I'm dying. I always wondered if I'm older, will I be less anxious because I know I'm closer to death. So that's (laughs) like dying as a 27 year old in my mind. I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to accomplish all these great things and, you know, be super, you know, successful in my field. And if I die right now in this moment. (laughs) My mom is, uh, my mom's in her seventies and she's like, ah. Screw all y'all. I'm too old to yeah. die young. I, I always wondered if I have a <laughs> if I have a panic attack when I'm 75, if I'll just be like, well, like I'm close anyway. You know, yeah, this I'll give is, a fuck. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Elderly people certainly have problems with anxiety just like anyone else. But um I've noticed in myself, the older I get, the less I give a shit. I am a very anomalous case of a person who's had just like all of his dreams come true. So that may <laughs> That may be part of it, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that that also shoots a lot of people into super anxious states and, and a lot of people get what they want and, and they don't know how to be happy with that. So that's a huge, you yeah, know, no, I mean, a round, of applause, it, round of applause to, to you for being the way being you really are. really lucky. Okay, great. But... <laughs> Hooray me for looking into it. But yeah, it didn't solve a lot of my problems. I was still having problems with depression and anxiety. Um, I always will, but uh, it's just a a thing you got to deal with. As I get older, I have a bunch of physical problems too. And I'm like, well, that's there too. You know, Mm -hmm. if I sit for a long time, then when I get up, my knees hurt. Okay. Yeah. And that apparently is a is a is a feature that's going to remain because <laughs> it hasn't gone away. So I guess you know anxiety is just one of those things. I have a couple more questions I wanted to ask you, and then I'll, I'll be mindful of the time. Yes, lightning round. My brothers would kill me if I didn't ask you this. They're also huge fans of your work. What did you think about the Martian winning the Golden Globe for Best Picture in a Comedy? That was one of the things they sent me to ask you. They wanted to know, like, was it weird? Like, what what were your thoughts on seeing it as a comedy? Uh, uh, It was as a musical or comedy. So remember, you know, maybe they thought it was a musical with all the disco. You know, Mm -hmm. you don't know. Yeah, it's a lot lot of Donna Summer. The Golden Globe, I mean, they've changed the rules and stuff since then. But really, the Golden Globes is 
a means by which the Hollywood foreign press gets to meet people they want to meet. And so they they nominate the people they want to interview. Okay. And so it is what it is. I've never been too too excited about awards. I mean, I've I've won a bunch of awards, and I I mean, I don't care. <laughs> yeah. I, I, mean, I mean, I guess it, that's a good that's a good attitude to to have. I guess it's cool, but it's not like your main focus. Yeah, it's not my main focus. If I, I would rather sell a million copies of a book than get an award. For time purposes, I, I would love to get more into the award stuff, but I, I wanted to ask you one last thing as we left off is you do a great job as being yourself and, and fearlessly weird in the way that you write. And I remember reading that phrase about you somewhere. I don't, I don't I'm, I apologize because I can't remember who called you fearlessly weird in which interview I watched. But you, you, when I read that, I was like, oh my God, like that's, that's how I would uh, describe the work that I've read so far from you. It's, it's fearlessly weird. So what is your best advice or insight into how you've become more fearlessly weird and, and to you know, kind of not giving a shit about the we- the weirdness that you put out into the world. Well, I guess it's just, I mean, it is like the oldest piece of advice in all of writing, write what you know. And the stuff I know is weird. So it comes off as me being fearlessly weird, but really I don't have anything else. You know, <laughs> I don't, I don't have a big bag of tricks and I'm just using one of them at the moment. This is the whole bag. It's all I got. So I'm just, I'm writing what I know. <laughs> yes. Well, th- that concludes our interview on 9-11. <laughs> And you. Um, why you should use heroin. <laughs> yes. And, yes. It, it, exactly. Uh, thank you, Andy, for your time. I'm, I really appreciate it. I know you you have to go and this has been a blast. So I, I, I'm looking forward to finishing Project Hail Mary. Everyone out there should go pick it up. I'm going to also include information in the intro and outro and how to get it and links and, and things like that when this eventually releases. And And again, thank you. I appreciate your time. All right. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for tuning into this episode of the Auxoro podcast. If this show has moved and inspired you in some small way, we would appreciate you taking the time to send this show to someone else you care about. The best way to spread love is to share what you love. You can follow us on Instagram, TikTok, and Facebook at at Auxoro and tune into our channel on YouTube by searching Auxoro for the video versions of these conversations. See you guys next time, motherfucker!